Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm Dave McCrae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today I'll be speaking to Dr. Charlotte Setiadi about her research on the position of Chinese Indonesians in the context of a rising China. Charlotte is a postdoctoral fellow at Nanyang Technological University but will soon be moving to the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies, also in Singapore. Charlotte, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dave. I started by asking Charlotte how important the rise of China has been to the position of Chinese Indonesians in Indonesia. In the context of Indonesia, I think that we need to view this question in context of um, two relatively recent phenomena. Um, one is um, the flourishing relationship between Indonesia and China in the past 15 years. Um, and secondly, of course, the return of Chinese culture in Indonesia in the post-Suharto era after, after 1998. And um, for Chinese Indonesians, according to, my, um, to the data that I've collected um, over the last few years, Chinese Indonesians generally have viewed the rise of China as something quite advantageous for their um, position um, locally, particularly among the business community and those involved in um, trade relations between China and Indonesia, because Chinese Indonesians, particularly those who speak Mandarin, um, now um, have the opportunity to become intermediaries in this growing relationship. So in terms um, of, of that context, Chinese Indonesians definitely benefit um, in, um, in the growing relation between China China and Indonesia and the rest of China as well. Um, but I guess it poses uh, greater questions as well about how the position of Chinese Indonesians or perceptions about Chinese Indonesians are tied to um, the perception about China more generally um, among the non-Chinese population. So um, in this regard, it can go, it can go either way. Uh, it can be an advantage, but also it can be a disadvantage being linked to China. The first year of the Joko Widodo government has been notable for an increased emphasis on developing ties with China. President Jokowi has welcomed Chinese investment in Indonesian infrastructure, consistent with a view that Indonesia's bilateral ties must deliver tangible benefits. The two countries have also emphasized the synergies between Jokowi's global maritime fulcrum and the Chinese maritime Silk Road concept, which President Xi Jinping first announced during a speech at the Indonesian parliament building in 2013. By Charlotte's count, Jokowi and Xi Jinping have already met more than nine times. I asked her whether Chinese Indonesians have been part of Jokowi's project to develop ties with China. They have definitely been included in trade negotiations and in trade visits between the two countries, particularly through associations such as the Chinese Indonesian Entrepreneur Association or the Indonesia China Business Council that have been involved in establishing um, ties and also in talks as well. And both governments can actually uh, advantage from the extensive Quanxi or trade or social kinship net networks that have been established by Chinese Indonesians over the years that have definitely played an important part in establishing um, particularly local government ties between uh, provincial governments in China and uh, local governments in Indonesia, again emphasizing um, the intermediary role of Chinese Indonesian um, businesses and business people in, in, in this relationship. So, so yes, they have been involved, but then again, it needs to be emphasized that um, this is particularly among the Chinese Indonesian business community, which in itself is quite a minority um, in the greater 
um, sense of Chinese Indonesians um, as a whole. So we can't, we also can't generalize, but um, this community has certainly been influential. In some of her earlier work, Charlotte has written about the reopening of Chinese schools in Indonesia from 1999 after the end of the Suharto-era bans on instruction in Chinese language and the display of Chinese characters. Given this history, I asked Charlotte whether there is in fact a significant portion of the Chinese Indonesian community who can play the role she described, acting as intermediaries with China, speaking Mandarin or other Chinese languages. I think uh, what a lot of people seem to not um, take into consideration when talking about um, the increase of Mandarin in Indonesia, etc., is that the fact is um, only a small percentage of Chinese Indonesians speak Mandarin um, at home in particular. Mm. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the Totok Pranakan distinction uh, among the Chinese community. The Totok community um, are the more, um, I guess, true or uh, or more Chinese Chinese, um, for lack of a better word, uh, where they are um, sort of later arrivals um, of Chinese migrants into Indonesia, they usually arrive in the um, in the 1800s or, or early 1900s and um, have largely um, held on to Chinese culture and speak um, Chinese languages at home. But it has to be remembered as well that um, for the majority of Chinese Indonesians, the language, the Chinese languages that they speak at home are usually Hakka or Hokkien or Teochew or Cantonese and not Mandarin itself. Um, the Peranakan group, who are more acculturated Chinese, who over the centuries have intermarried and developed their own unique culture within um, within their Peranakan communities, um, mostly do not speak Mandarin. Like my own family, for instance, my grandparents spoke Dutch um, and not any Chinese languages. Um, now, obviously, with uh, with the liberalization of Chinese languages in Indonesia and also the rise of China and um, the globalization of Mandarin, um, we've seen an increase in the Mandarin uptake among Chinese Indonesians, but this is still quite a small minority in my opinion. It's definitely an increasing number and more and more um, Indonesians, both Chinese and non-Chinese, actually go to mainland China now to pursue studies. For instance, in 1999, there were only about a thousand Indonesian students in China. The figure now is closer to about 15,000. By comparison, it's generally estimated there are around 17,000 Indonesian students studying in Australia. Yeah, so it's definitely a growing number and it's definitely fueled by uh, the desire to be able to speak Chinese. But this is um, still a uh, quite a small number, um, in my opinion. And uh, I guess the growing concern among um, linguists in particular and also sections of the Chinese Indonesian community themselves, particularly the older generation, is that like sooner or later, languages like Hakka or Hokkien and Cantonese will eventually die away. Um, if it's not used anymore, because then the generation who spoke those languages will eventually die away as well. Um, and this is a phenomenon that we're seeing not just in Indonesia, but also in other Chinese diasporas around the world. One sees a duality of views in Indonesia regarding China as an economic force. A Lowy Institute poll fielded in 2011, for example, found 54% of Indonesians agreeing that China's growth had been good for the country but also 38% disagreeing. There is an awareness both of the economic opportunity China's rise presents, but also an anxiety that China could dominate Indonesia's economy by flooding it with goods or workers. 
In late August, for example, the mainstream weekly news magazine Tempo ran a sensationalist and overtly anti-Chinese cover story warning of just such a flood of Chinese workers. Given Charlotte's description of Chinese Indonesians as seeing the rise of China as advantageous economically, I asked Charlotte whether there was any of the same duality of views as you see in the broader Indonesian population. Yeah, definitely. Um, one thing that we need to remember when we look at Chinese Indonesians uh, as a community is that within the Chinese Indonesian community themselves, there are internal divisions and that Chinese Indonesians are far from homogenous. For instance, before I talked about the division between the, the Totok and the Pranakan and the cultural orientation of the two groups, uh, we have linguistic diversity, we have economic diversity. When we think about stereotypes of Chinese Indonesians, usually people assume that um, all Chinese Indonesians are um, entrepreneurs or are belong to a higher social class, etc. But uh, in reality, um, there are varying opinions among Chinese Indonesians themselves about how um, to best position themselves in this um, new environment where China and Indonesia are both close yet also competing economically and also how to respond to the rise of China. On the one hand, you have um, Chinese Indonesians who feel positive about the closeness to China and um, the potential for Chinese Indonesians to be trade, cultural, linguistic intermediaries in the relationship between the two countries. Um, they see it as an opportunity where for the first time in a long time, Chinese Indonesians can play a positive um, role and Chinese Indonesians can be an asset to Indonesia um, to foster trade relationships, not just in encouraging Chinese investment in Indonesia, but also to promote Indonesian goods abroad or the importation of Indonesian goods abroad, and they see it as, as an opportunity um, in, in that sense. But on the other hand, you also have sections of the community that are still wary about potential associations with China. If we look at the position of Chinese Indonesians throughout history, Particularly if we think about the 1960s, where um, associations with China, um, ideologically or um, actual ties with China, dual nationality issues, etc., has gotten Chinese Indonesians in trouble. That um, And this was part of the reason why uh, the assimilation policy was implemented by the New Order government in the first place. So many Chinese Indonesians, particularly those from a Peranakan background, feel really wary and traumatized by the potential backlash of, of an over-closeness um, to, uh, towards China. So I guess if we're thinking about um, you know, a, ter a term that has been used a lot um, to refer to the revival of Chinese culture among Chinese Indonesians in the post-Sukharto era is resignification. There, um, there is a paradox to this where Yes, um, it could be a really good thing for Chinese Indonesians to um, strengthen their position by being useful in China-Indonesian relations, but it can also um, result in a backlash. Like you mentioned before about the recent Tempo article, um, the cover story about the flood of uh, Chinese workers into Indonesia, um, which, is, which is quite interesting because um, in the Tempo article itself, the numbers quoted, um, I think they quoted about 5,000 blue-collar workers from China coming into Indonesia to work on um, China-sponsored projects. 5,000 is not really a flood. In the Tempo edition in question, the Indonesian Manpower Minister gave an overall figure for foreign workers in Indonesia not just Chinese workers, 
of approximately 70,000 people. Even this figure, he said, was less than 0.1% of the overall Indonesian workforce. So, like, the interesting thing here is this perception, uh, particularly um, the, Ch the Chinese um, foreign workers were singled out in this particular article, um, about this perception of China wanting to dominate Indonesia or recolonization or, or the China threat. Um, if you look at the comments um, circulating around the internet about this particular topic, um, there are still comments tied to that China has a communist ideology and, you know, this is serving the interest of China and, um, you know, how are the Chinese Indonesians involved in this. So there is that's still that, you know, perception of Chinese Indonesians as um, a fifth column to China. And also China is still looked upon with a particular um bias here, um, which which tells you a lot about uh, the problematic relationship between um, Indonesians and, um, and Chinese Indonesians, and also um, about Indonesians' perception about China more generally. And the two, are, I think, are very closely tied. Beyond the Tempo magazine feature and the social media responses to it, I asked Charlotte whether there were other manifestations of the broader Indonesian population's wariness towards China being reflected in their attitudes to Chinese Indonesians? Um, yeah, I think so. If you look at um, the reactions towards, for instance, Jakarta's um, governor, uh, Basuki Chaya Purnama, or Ahok, um, Ahok has been a, um, a very controversial figure. And um, if we look at some of the um, attacks target, um, targeted towards him, um, some have mentioned his ethnicity and his religion as Christian um, as well, particularly um, for those who want to slander him. Um, his Chineseness is often a point of contestation, even though Ahok himself has repeatedly said that he doesn't want to be identified um, by his ethnicity or by his religion, but by his works, for instance. But it's but it's almost inevitable, and uh, we're seeing as well, um, for instance, uh, during uh, Jokowi's presidential campaign last year, one of the um, slanders against him was this rumor spread that he was, um, in fact, a Chinese Indonesian, um, and you know, and that he was a Christian, um, etc. Um, and um, even though you know this rumor was obviously not true, the I guess the, the both sad and interesting thing about it is that um, you know these kind of rumors still um, can have quite an impact among uh, sections of the community. There are um, still harboring um, negative perceptions towards Chineseness and Chinese Indonesians, and that um, you know politicians like Jokowi. Um, had to uh, come out and say that I'm in fact not Chinese Indonesians. Uh, um, so um, this, I guess, is a, um, a strong indication of um, the state of um, perception towards Chinese Indonesians, although it has to be said that um, China and Chinese Indonesians have enjoyed many um, policy reforms over the last 15 years um, that can't be ignored, but the underlying negative perception um, um, still exists and, and we're seeing manifestations of it during times um, of um, economic or political, um, I wouldn't say crisis, but um, during, during um, controversial times. 
Jacoby and Ahok overcame the racist smears against him to win the 2012 Jakarta gubernatorial election. And Ahok has since become one of the most prominent politicians in Indonesia after he became governor in 2014. The contrast with the authoritarian era when Chinese Indonesians essentially had no political voice is striking. I asked Charlotte whether Ahok's political rise opened broader space for Chinese Indonesians to take part in public politics and to move past some of the smears against them. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Um, in fact, um, even before Ahok came to, um, to the political um, mainstream like uh, we've witnessed recently, Chinese Indonesians have actually made a concerted effort since 1998 to uh, become much more visible in, um, in politics and to make sure that there, um, there is Chinese Indonesian representation at all levels of parliament. Like, for instance, uh, we see um, huge increases of numbers um, of Chinese Indonesian legislative candidates at um, all levels of government from um, 100 in 2004 to over 200 in 2009 and finally over 300 um, candidates in 2014. And in the last legislative election last year, we saw 15 um, Chinese Indonesians elected to the DPR, which is um, an incredible number considering that in the New Order era, era, like you mentioned before, Chinese Indonesians pretty much didn't have a political voice. Charlotte explained that 15 DPR members out of 560 at 2.7% was roughly in line with the proportion of Chinese Indonesians in the broader Indonesian population. And um, in terms of um, Ahok's role in influencing more and more Chinese Indonesians to uh, be involved in politics, this is this is true particularly among the um, the younger Chinese Indonesians. I spoke to a number of um, younger Chinese Indonesian candidates uh, during campaign season last year, and quite a number, for instance, like Charles Honoris, um, who ended up uh, being elected into uh, the DPR quoted um, Ahok as being one of the inspirations that um, just because you're Chinese Indonesian, just because you know, you're know you not uh, from a prominent uh, business family or something doesn't mean that you can't uh, be elected or you can't be part of the government and that the real, um, uh, the real contribution that you can make um, in Indonesian politics is by running um, for um, for political positions. And I think this is also motivated not just by Ahok, but the lesson from um, the, the tragedy of the May 1998 riots um, in the eyes of many Chinese Indonesians is that Chinese Indonesians need a political voice, that it's not enough um, just to be active in sectors such as the economy. Um, it's also important for Chinese Indonesians to have actual political representation. And this has been a, a huge um, motivating force, um, as well as the prominence of figures like Ahok. Um, having said that, though, um, I think I would add that um, Ahok's controversy, while he's a very popular governor, um, his um, controversial um, statements and his uh, controversial attitudes in, in being tough in implementing his uh, policies and also um, him being accused of being too alienating has made um, many Chinese Indonesians a little bit wary that uh, figures like Ahok 
um, are going to give a negative image to Chinese Indonesians generally. Um, of course, uh, this is not the popular opinion of Ahok, but we have to remember that many Chinese Indonesians still have political trauma and um, are still a bit wary of being so prominent politically. So Ahok is a divisive figure, not just among Indonesians, but also among Chinese Indonesians, uh, many of whom do support him. Set against Ahok's striking rise, and the increase in Chinese-Indonesian DPR members, this year has also seen the formation of an indigenous party, Partai Pribumi, with its declaration time to coincide with the 70th anniversary of Indonesian independence. It's been a very interesting phenomenon witnessing uh, this formation of of the Partai Pribumi uh, that you mentioned before. Um, The word Pribumi has been... um, a very contested term, um, particularly among Chinese Indonesians who feel that the word uh, has been used in the past to discriminate against them. Um, In fact, one of the first um, acts of reforms um, that the Habibi administration made uh, through his presidential instructions was the abolishment of the terms pribumi and non-pribumi in official documents, um, uh, official government documents and business. And um, this was something that was regarded as as, as quite a victory for, for Chinese Indonesian lobby groups to, to get rid of the word pribumi. Um, it seems to have made a comeback in, in, um, in recent times as manifested in this Partai Pribumi. Uh, we don't know yet how influential this Partai Pribumi is going to be, whether it's just like um, an extreme right um, offshoot that's not really going to um, have much impact apart from the symbolic nature uh, of the group, but um, it is um, it is an interesting phenomena, and I think this highlights underlying um, tensions that still exist um, and underlying uh, negative perceptions towards um, Chinese Indonesians, but also um, other groups considered to be non-Pribumi um, as foreigners who take away jobs who take away opportunities, who are taking over indigenous economy um, in Indonesia. Um, Yeah, like I said before, this highlights the existence of the underlying tensions um, against Chinese Indonesians and those regarded to be foreign, um, even after all the reforms of the the last 15 years. So um, that's, that's quite an important point to make. One of the pervasive negative attitudes that Chinese Indonesians have faced over a long period is the idea that they are intrinsically defined by their Chineseness and so essentially foreign. I asked Charlotte whether we're now seeing a questioning of Chinese Indonesians' loyalty or nationality in the context of the rise of China. Now with the rise of China and the um, conflicting interests between um, China and Indonesia's economic interests or um, regional security interests in the in, in um, situations like the South China Sea conflict. Um, I don't think we're um, at the stage yet where Chinese Indonesians will be asked regarding their loyalty, uh, whether they are uh, more loyal towards Indonesia or more uh, more loyal towards China, um, but um, it could be a question um, that will be asked more often in the future, uh, particularly in regards to um, defending Indonesia's economic interests and um, the labor the Indonesian labor force in um, response to China's rise and China's economic dominance and also importation of workers in. 
into Indonesia in terms of um, disputes such as the South China Sea dispute with the Natuna Islands uh, between Indonesia and China. It hasn't been a big deal uh, in Indonesia um, like it uh, like it is um, with the South China conflict between um, the Philippines and China, where Chinese Filipinos have been um, increasingly questioned in terms of their loyalty. Uh, for instance, what, who would they back? Um, in the event that China and the Philippines go to war, for instance. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely not like that for Chinese Indonesians, at least for now, but um, I can see it uh, brewing into that more and more, uh, particularly as, um, you know, I guess this honeymoon period between um, China and Indonesia uh, in terms of economic and uh, bilateral corporations um, move forward and um, reveal more and more um, conflicts. Finally, I asked Charlotte for her take on a piece written for the Indonesia at Melbourne blog by the sociologist Dr. Robertus Robert from the State University of Jakarta, highlighting anti-foreign rhetoric under Jokowi by Jokowi himself, other government and oppositional figures. Dr. Robert argued that historically such rhetoric had culminated in attacks on the ethnic Chinese, creating the risk that Chinese Indonesians would again become targets of violence. Yeah, um, I uh, completely agree with the arguments put forward by Dr. Robertus Roberts' uh, article. And um, I agree with him also in saying that historically, anti-foreign sentiments, um, not just in the 20th century, but even in the colonial era, um, has culminated in attacks against the local ethnic Chinese populations. For instance, um, Dr. Robert in his article uh, mentioned the anti-Chinese riots in Bandung in 1963. That started off as a protest against um, then President Sukarno's warm, warm relations with China. In 1974, the Malari riots that started as a protest against the Japanese Prime Minister culminated in anti Chinese rioting in Jakarta. Um, you know, these, uh, you know, particularly the 1974 Malari incident, um, you can argue was completely uh, unrelated to Chinese Indonesians. But um, the association of Chinese Indonesians as foreigners, as foreigners who overtook um, Indonesia's economy uh, culminated in, in anger uh, towards them. And the May 1998 riots started off um, with uh, economic instability caused by the Asian financial crisis. So um, I think it's absolutely right in saying that um, you know, anti-foreign sentiments have been expressed in this way. And among the Chinese Indonesian community itself, there's this very prevalent perception that um, you know, the May 1998 riots um, could repeat itself again um, in the future if there's like economic or political crisis um, that would incite public anger because public anger uh, towards the government, particularly if it has anything to do with the economy, will be um, will be uh, resulting in the targeting of the Chinese Indonesian. So this is this is a very prevalent um, uh, perception and. Um, Yes, I, I certainly hope it won't be uh, it won't be true in the future, uh, particularly with um, all the changes that have happened in the last fifteen years. But um, historically speaking, unfortunately, that has been the case. Charlotte, it's been fascinating to talk to you. Uh, unfortunately, we've we've run out of time. Uh, but uh, yeah, thanks very much for your insights and uh, uh, all the best for your move to ICs later in the year. Thanks, Dave. It's a pleasure. That was. Dr. Charlotte Setiadi from the Nanyang Technological University and soon to move to the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies, 
also in Singapore, speaking about her research on Chinese Indonesians and the rise of China. You can find all the Talking Indonesia podcasts at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or you can subscribe to the podcasts via iTunes and Stitcher. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast.